Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. GlobalRecon.net, FieldcraftSurvival.com. I'm your host, John Hendricks. The show is co-hosted by Mike Glover of Fieldcraft LLC. Um, unfortunately, Mike wasn't able to get on for today's episode, as he is, as he likes to say, tad saturated. Um, Mike's working on some things, and it's got him pretty busy. So, uh, with that being said, I had the privilege to interview to conduct two separate interviews, one with uh, DJ Strunts, who is the Minister of Propaganda for North American Rescue which is a leading uh, company that deals with uh, trauma and more specifically combat trauma and things like that. And and we'll get more into North American Rescue in the interview. And then I also had the privilege of interviewing G from Zero Foxtrot, which is a Marine uh, veteran-owned company, which has a large social media presence. And he talks about veteran issues he highlights veterans from wars past specifically vietnam and world war ii and he kind of has a very interesting thing going on there and as a a history buff i you know i appreciate uh, his post and his content and we had a very awesome discussion about fallujah about ramadi in iraq which he deployed during some of the worst fighting there and um we also discussed warfare and the perception of warfare and some of the history of war and things like that. So it was a very great uh, interview. And first, we're going to get into the interview with DJ from North American Rescue. And then afterwards, we'll get into the interview with G from Zulu Foxtrot. So here's the interview with uh, DJ from North American Rescue. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm on with DJ Strunts, who is the Minister of Propaganda for North American Rescue. And for those of you who don't know what North American Rescue is, DJ is going to give you guys a brief introduction. Hey, everybody. I um, really appreciate you guys inviting me on today. Um, North American Rescue is a premier provider of pre-hospital point-of-wounding medical care products. Uh, We've been in business for about 20 years, um, and we provide equipment to the modern warfighter, modern warfighter uh, first responders, EMS, rescue task force, SWAT, um, and we just uh, keep working to innovate and provide those products to keep saving lives on the battlefield or, or at home uh, here domestically. So DJ, I, I've seen like on Instagram and uh, social media and videos and stuff, a lot of uh, soldiers, whether the special operations guys or just um, conventional infantry units, they use the North American rescue equipment, like the tourniquets. Uh, just a little, can you give a little specifics on that? Sure. I'm going to kind of start from the beginning, if you don't mind. Just uh, 20 years ago, a, a PJ from uh, 24th Squadron got injured uh in a high altitude high opening free fall so just for for the listeners who won't Um, know what is a pj okay sorry a pararescue uh jumper he's the uh air force special operations um 
uh, AFSOC. Uh, they go after down pilots. They go out on CSAR, or combat search and rescue missions. They also operate with ground units um, as uh, advanced medics. Um, they are the 24th Squadron is considered a tier one unit that works with uh, our top of the line uh, JSOC units um, or Joint Special Operations Command units to provide them with medical support. Um, so that is kind of the background on what we were founded by. Um, so Bob Castellani was our, our, our founding father. Um, he's still here as our CEO. And, and when he got hurt, he had seen a need for a collapsible, reusable litter and designed one in his garage, um, and built it with his wife. And that's how North American Rescue was born. He was out on the street selling them out of the back of his car, driving all up and down to all the military trade shows, trying to meet with people and uh, trying to get this litter accepted. And it was uh, eventually uh, by uh, the most highly decorated corpsman in Vietnam, um, uh, Doc Eagles. And uh, he was uh, in charge of procurement for the Marines uh, medical side out of Camp Lejeune and brought the the litters in and that was kind of how NAR started. Um, so we're known, our, our litters are seen all over the modern battlefield with U.S. forces and then also the cat tourniquet or combat application tourniquet that you guys see everywhere. Um, we've worked extremely hard to help push the development of that and we are the global distributor of, of that device. Um, and that is the official tourniquet of the Department of Defense. So um, big army, uh, you'll see it pretty much ubiquitous through the Department of Defense. Um, it's used by the majority of municipalities. Uh, there are some other great options out there, but uh, we're pretty uh, proud of our products and we keep working to improve them. Nice, nice. So DJ, can we get into your background a little bit? You, you have an, uh, a bit of an interesting background, and I know how you hooked up with North American Rescue is also interesting. So can we uh, start with what you were doing in your in your career, in your life, and then how you ended up hooking up with North American Rescue? Sure, John. Um, so I am a civilian. I always have been. I've had a, a love affair with the military since a very young age. Uh, for whatever reason, my my course took a 90-degree turn right before I was uh, scheduled to complete uh, my qualification for the Air Force Academy, and I ended up going into biology, uh, where I worked for the federal government as a marine biologist for three years, and then ended up getting a master's degree in biology. And while I was doing that, I had another curveball and started shooting surf photos. And for the next 13 years, I worked as a senior staff photographer for Surfing Magazine, kind of traveling all over the world with the world's best surfers to the best locations and some of the strangest locations, uh, doing editorial trips for the magazine. Um, and that was actually how I got introduced to North American Rescue was um, I did a trip in 2006 to Yemen to take a group of surfers over there to do an exploration surf trip. And right before I left, I had a few friends that were old second, uh, second force, uh, Marine special operations. And they introduced me to 
a friend of theirs who has just gotten back from Yemen doing Foreign Internal Defense, or FID, uh, for MARSOC, or Marine Special Operations Command. And the day before I left uh, for Yemen, I met him up just outside of Camp Lejeune. It was his 35th birthday. Um, I bought him a steak dinner, and, and he told me what I needed to know and what to expect when I got uh, on the ground in Yemen. And then the next morning, we... Uh, he, and he gave me some med kit to take with me that was actually a cat tourniquet, a, a emergency trauma dressing, and a couple other things. And then the next day, I got on a plane with a sat phone and three surfers, and that was it. And we were off to Yemen. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So from Yemen, how long were you in Yemen? We were on the ground for 15 days, and it was a pretty intense experience. We didn't know what to expect. Um, we'd found our guide online. Uh, the guide agency was listed as being uh, headquartered on Al Qaeda street, which is a little <laughs> disconcerting. Uh, um, we got on the ground. We had no idea who was going to be meeting us. We were really fortunate. We actually had a university professor while we were in Sanaa who spoke multiple languages and took amazing care of us. And then we hopped a flight out to a tiny Island that's off the horn of Africa called Socotra that's owned by Yemen. Um, it's like going back in time to Bible times. I mean, there, the standard of living was really, really primitive. Um, we had most of the villages we were in, we had the only electricity with a, with a, uh, generator that we had with us to charge my camera batteries, um, and computer. And, uh, they'd never seen Caucasians in most of the areas we were in. So, we had a lot of experiences of people hiding, thinking that we were pirates because it's a, in an area that's known uh, for a high piracy rate. But um, And a few kind of, I wouldn't call them close calls, but intense moments where they were trying to figure out if we were Americans because of uh, some of the things that were happening geopolitically in the area. Uh, so we pretend we were French and uh, kind of exit stage right. Um, the Israelis started a shooting war. They invaded Lebanon while we were there, and that made things a little more tense. But um, all in all, it was an incredible experience with, um, you know, some amazing hospitality. It's a trip I'll never forget. None of the surfers will ever forget. It was, uh, it was a definitely a lifetime kind of highlight. So after your Yemen trip, is that when you hooked up with North American Rescue? Um, not directly. After Yemen, I that trip kind of opened the door into meeting a lot more of my friends, friends who were in the Marine special operations community. Um, because I was suddenly the photographer that was dumb enough to go to Yemen <laughs> without a gun. And they'd all been working there uh, or had friends that had been working there. So they tripped out that here's a guy that would go willingly into an area of quote unquote conflict zone with just a camera and some surfers. So it opened doors and started some dialogues and, and ended up creating some friendships that I treasure to this day with my closest friends from the Marsoc community um, who took me in. Um, and I'd grown up hunting and fishing, but I'd never done tactical shooting. I'd never done uh, anything like that. And, and they took me in and basically just, you don't know what you don't know. And I'm going to be the first to admit that, but they helped educate me enough to be dangerous is the way I like to describe it. Um, they taught me basic CQB. They taught me, you know, basic military trauma medicine, you know, TCCC or tactical combat casualty care, um, how to use tourniquets, how to use pressure dressings, how to, um, you know, establish C-spine, how to take care of people. So 
they worked um, on all of that with me. Uh, that's pretty awesome training to for a civilian to go through. So how, eventually, how did these guys uh, end up hooking you up with North American Rescue? I kept training with them, you know, through the next couple, three years um, and just doing some photo shoots with them just kind of for fun and to help them out with some projects they were working on with and getting some cool guy photos. And then eventually I was kind of looking for a transition and I away from just doing the whole surf thing all the time. And I picked up one of those tourniquets and I'd never looked at where they came from. Um, they were just in my bag. And I looked one day and it was like Greer, South Carolina, North American rescue. And I was like, huh, that's just down the, you know, that's five hours away from me. So I Googled it and found a phone number for the, you know, found the company's website and just cold called them, called the front desk. And, uh, I was like, Hey, I'm a surf photographer. Is there somebody there I can talk to? And they were baffled. They're like, what, what, why are you calling us? I'm <laughs> like, well, some Marsoc guys gave me some of your kit. And then they were more baffled and they finally bounced me around and, uh, patched me back to the vice president of, uh, civilian, you know, non DOD stuff. And, he was like, why are you interested in our gear? And I was like, because if I go to REI and buy a first aid kit, I get a bunch of band-aids and antihistamine and alcohol wipes. But I go to places that are really bizarre and guys get hurt and have broken limbs or there's a potential for a shark attack or a laceration or all these different things. And you guys make products that actually apply to what I do. And it turned into a phone conference, you know, a few weeks later and a few months later, it was a visit. They came out to see me and meet with some, uh, different people that I was working with. And then they invited me up to a TCCC class here at North American rescue, um, that I went through and, and that really kind of kickstarted the whole relationship. And then, uh, from there became, got invited to shoot some photos for them and became a consultant. And then I guess about a year ago, I came on full time as the minister of propaganda. Nice. That's pretty awesome. So what exactly is the minister of propaganda? Um, well, you have to be careful when you let someone choose their own title. So, <laughs> uh, I run all the social media platforms. I do all the photography. Um, I basically have tried to help be a touch point for our consumers, our in consumers to give them a feel for what the brand is and where we came from and where we're going and what we're doing. Because, I think a lot of people, you know, it's just, they were like me, they, you know, they might've been issued the cat tourniquet, but they have no idea where it came from. And if they do, it's just some company somewhere. Um, and I'm kind of the voice of, I try to be the voice of the company in the sense that we really push to celebrate lifesavers and medics and people that are, you know, good people doing great things. We try to highlight in our social media feeds, not just our products. Uh, we really want to educate people, um, and help prepare them so that if they have a bad day, they're prepared and equipped to be able to deal with it and hopefully get home to their families. I mean, bottom line, that's the ethos of the company is we want you to get home to your family. Um, yes, we're a business. Yes, we sell products. But uh, it's a great group of people from military backgrounds, a lot of special forces, a lot of SWAT, a lot of you know 20-year paramedics all working to come up with ways to keep people alive. And that's uh, the passion of everybody there. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting company. And uh, from, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it, but from what I do know, the, the guys are pretty solid who are behind a lot of what's going on there. 
So I know that you've been busy the last couple of days, and you're actually at the North American headquarters, North American Rescue headquarters. And what are you guys doing over there? Um, every once in a while, we stage a TCCC course, like the one that I took here. Um, typically, they're um, set up to help out local and state and federal task force law enforcement. Um, this class was a little different. It was a lot of fire and EMS, but we just had a two-day uh, tactical combat casualty care course, uh, which it was, you know, classroom work about learning about all the different, uh, stages and different treatments that fall underneath that umbrella. Um, there were skill stations for the students where they're actually doing hands-on to learn on mannequins, um, putting tourniquets on each other. So, was, you know, basic how to take care of somebody if they have penetrating trauma, blast trauma, you know, a vehicle accident and they have severe bleeding. Um, and then it culminated today in a uh, field exercise where the students were faced with an unknown, they were in teams of four and faced an unknown number of casualties. So a lot of it was just to stress the students and see how they performed under that stress, that kind of fog of war. So we loaded them up into a SWAT vehicle, closed the doors, drove them down to the bottom of a hill. When those doors opened, suddenly they were faced with a down police officer, uh, another a big uh, one of our simulation mannequins with multiple injuries. They had to treat those patients and carry the 185 pound sim mannequin up this you know steep grade to a drop off casualty drop off point. Then they had to infiltrate in through a, a tunnel that we have, a sewer kind of drain tunnel. It's underground, so they're low belly crawling through water and whatever else through this tunnel, pop out, and then. They enter into the building and face different casualty scenarios, um, and then they had to breach into a, uh, using a Halligan tool, breach into a big kind of training building that is within side of our main uh, warehouse, and that's filled with smoke, and there's no lights except for some strobes, and there's uh, hard, you know, there's crazy music blasting at I don't know how many decibels, but you can't hear anything, you can't see anything, and then they had to um, once they enter, you know, it's all sensory, you know, they have headlamps and they're having to identify what the injury patterns are on like seven role players and treat them. Um, once they had them, you know, basic, you know, point of wounding care, they had to pull them out of the building and stage them out to a triage point and then carry them back down the hill to the vehicle for, uh, for exfil. So it was, it's really intense, but it's, every student loves it. It's, the most rewarding training and you learn so much because it exposes all of your mistakes, all of the areas you need to work on, um, exposes lack of communication in your team, all those things that can really happen in a real world scenario. Um, at least it gives you a taste of what that kind of rush is going to be like and where you need to really focus on future training and things like that. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty intense day. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So I, I know you said right before you said specifically what the training entailed, you said you guys don't really do much training scenarios. So you, I, I would assume that the main focus is in the product itself. Correct. Yeah, we're a product company first and foremost. I mean, we are not – we have a, a pretty small core staff um, that you know works on product sales, product development um, – R and you know not too much R and D some and then you know but we have people out there looking for the next great thing that we're gonna 
uh, look to incorporate into what we're doing and, and just, it's a constant, um, you know, the war on trauma is constantly evolving. Uh, we're always looking for new ways to stop bleeding, to keep people alive longer, to reduce, uh, reduce side effects of the treatments that you're giving them. Just, uh, the litany of, of problems that are encountered in kind of austere environments, uh, like the modern battlefield presents or remote medicine, we're, you know, always working on ways to solve those problems that clinicians and medics down, you know, line medics are encountering. Hey, so DJ, I just want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and have this discussion with me. I know you're pretty busy. So for anyone who's interested in learning more about North American Rescue or you specifically, can you list some social media handles uh, and websites or an email address where people can reach out? Yeah, sure. And we really appreciate, you know, appreciate being on, on with you guys. Um, uh, the easy way to follow us on social media is we're simply North American Rescue, uh, both that's for Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, if you kind of want to see some of my other side of my surf world and my diving, it's just DJ Strunt's photo on Instagram. Uh, and if you have any questions about us, uh, feel free to email me. It's DJ Strunts, S-T-R-U-N-T-Z, at narescue.com. And uh, be more than happy to try to try to connect you if I don't have the answer to somebody who does. Nice. Awesome. So in the uh, in the podcast notes, which I, I post for every episode on my website, I'll list some of those uh, links for anyone who's interested. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Thank you. And talk soon. I enjoyed that interview, and North American Rescue is a very interesting company, and they provide a very invaluable service for first responders and our military personnel in providing uh, such great equipment. Now, the uh, the CAT tourniquet, the Combat Application Tourniquet, is the official tourniquet of the U.S. Army since 2005, and they have contributed to the uh, decrease in uh, casualties on the battlefield because of the uh, equipment, which uh, helps stop guys from bleeding out on the battlefield and allows them to stay alive long enough so they can get to a hospital. So uh, very interesting, very important. Check out NorthAmericanRescue.com for more information. So with that being said, now I'm going to get into the interview with G from Zero Foxtrot. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm on with G from Zero Foxtrot. And Zero Foxtrot is a veteran-owned company which sells American-made goods on their website. And they also have a large social media presence where they highlight veteran issues they highlight stories from of veterans, not only from the global war on terror, but from wars prior, and specifically a lot of stuff on Vietnam, which is you know very interesting to me, and and I know to a lot of the listeners as well. So, G, how's it going, man? Hey, what's going on, John? Uh, I'm doing good, and you know, thanks for uh, having me on here, man. No, no worries, man. I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on. So. Gee, before before we get into your company and and uh, some of your experiences in the military, I just want to ask what what led you to joining the military, and and can you just explain a little bit of, about that uh, pre military for you? Yeah, of course, man. Uh, so a lot of people don't know I was actually born in Europe, and uh, I moved here to the states, 
And, um, you know, the military was always something I wanted to be in. I guess, you know, every kid wants to be in the military. And uh, when 9-11 happened, you know, that just kind of made me realize that the world was going to change. And I decided to join. Um, I enlisted at 17 with my parents' consent uh, in 2003. And went to the uh, uh, the early entry program, um, and I was actually getting ready to join the army until a, a Marine Scout sniper who was a recruiter back then, you know, he said, uh, "Hey, I heard you joined the army," and so on and so forth. And I was like, "Yeah," you know. And he's like, "Well, that's what you want to do, man, and go for it." And I didn't like that tone. So next day, I signed up with the Marines, and um, a week after graduating high school, I shipped out to boot camp and kind of started from there. Oh, that's that's awesome, man. So I, I know that you have a few combat deployments. Um, and during those years, the deployment to Iraq was, was serious business because the fighting was pretty heavy. So can you talk a little bit about your deployments? And then we'll, we'll get into some more details about that a little later on. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, so uh, I... Essentially, I went as an 0311 uh, as an infantry. That's what I wanted to do. I figured if I got joined the military and during a, you know during a time of war, uh, that's what you need to be doing. Um, and that's where my mind was at. So I went to boot camp, went through SOI, and then that's when the whole um, by that time it was November of 04, and that's when Fallujah was kicking off. It was all over the news. Uh, and that's when the insurgency really started picking up. Uh, and by that time, I got assigned to my unit with uh, uh, 1st Battalion, 6 Marines out of Lejeune. And I uh, trained with them for a few weeks uh, and then had leave. And next thing you know, we deployed to Fallujah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we got there. We relieved the dudes from um, 3-5 uh, that were in uh, Operation Phantom Fury. And, you know, those guys, they did a tremendous, you know, awesome job out there. I mean, they just leveled the entire city man and, and got the job done uh so i was definitely proud to you know be in that area afterwards uh just because of the significance of uh you know of the battle and what these guys went through you know what i mean so um but yeah so that was uh fallujah you know was there for uh roughly about seven to eight months and then uh we came back and uh we were supposed to go back to fallujah um but it got switched up and we ended up going to Ramadi instead. And that was a reality check for a lot of us, um, even for guys that have been to Afghanistan or Iraq prior. And, um, you know, we're there for, let's see, nine, almost nine months because we ended up getting extended due to the other uh, surge in 2007. And that right there, that was just uh, a very real experience. Uh, you know, it was, you know, full-fledged combat. Um and, um, yeah, so that was in short my, you know, my military career, my deployments. Okay. So I know that, um, we were talking offline and, and then you spoke about how, when you got into Fallujah, the operation had just finished and I, I'm assuming there was still, still combat and there was still fighting going on, but it obviously it wasn't as heavy as, as that initial operation. And I know a, a big part of that was for like political reasons, um, and you know, and and uh, what the American public was uh, thinking was happening, and a lot of different things contributed to that. But once you got to Ramadi, that's when the fighting got really heavy for you. 
Yeah, so essentially, uh, so Fallujah, when we got there, essentially it was kind of like the aftermath. So, you know, all these people got displaced. The fighting was, the heavy fighting was essentially over. So our job was to, you know, pretty much stabilize the, you know, the city again, uh, getting people in. And uh, and it was relatively quiet for the first few months. And then it kind of started picking up again here and there. Uh, I mean, overall, you know, it was... Um, you know, compared to Ramadi, it was a uh, it was a pretty easy deployment. I mean, we did lose some guys. You know, we you know got ID'd here and there, some firefights. Um, you know, we did a lot of raids. Uh, so essentially, we got to see more of how the civilian side got affected because of the fighting. Um, but you know, essentially, that that city needed to be taken down. Uh, you know, when. The contractors got killed in, you know, uh, in, two, in early 2004. The Marines went in there and they got stopped because of political reasons. Um, and six months later, they had to go back in there and finish the job. So uh, one thing that I will highlight is that on a battlefield, there's just no room for politics. Uh, if you're going to send Marines in, they're going to go in there, get the job done and let them do it. Um, and that's that's what we're trained to do. So. Um, in, in all essence, you know, my deployment of Fallujah was kind of, you know, kind of like, yo, we're going to go out there and just kick some butt or what, man, you know, right. um, because of all the politics and stuff like that. We were also, you know, uh, restrained to do a lot of things. You know what I mean? We're, you know, that we're trying to make us work as police officers when, you know, we're a fighting force. Now, Ramadi, Ramadi was uh, was different because all the insurgents and all the, you know, that didn't get killed in Fallujah essentially moved to that city. It's always been a hot spot uh, since the war started. And uh, you also got to consider it's one of the biggest cities that's close to the Syrian border. So it was a natural hotbed for insurgents. And uh, a lot of battalions that went through that, that you know, through Ramadi, um, you know, everybody uh, has has had their share. I'll put it that way. And when we got there, it was no different. Yeah, if, if anyone has any knowledge of the Iraq war, uh, then they know specifically Ramadi was a very dangerous place for Americans to be. And um, it was a very volatile area in a, in a volatile country. And being that the, the border of Syria was so close, a lot of uh, foreign fighters were able to gain entry into Ramadi which obviously made it more difficult for American units operating in, in the area. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Ramadi, when uh, when we got there, I mean, you hit the nail on the head right on there. So from my experience, the minute we got there, uh, within three days, we already started taking contact, getting in firefights, getting ambushed, and we already started taking casualties. Uh the environment and the atmosphere was very, very violent. Uh, when we got into the city, we essentially only had a very small part of the city secured. And when I mean small, I mean a few blocks. Uh, and the only way to, you know, um, to essentially liberate the city, I guess you can say, was to go out there and hunt these guys down and, and have a presence. Um, so we did. And the cost was high. I mean, the patrols that we ran, you know, we could go maybe, I want to say, half a click. And then we had to come right back because of uh, the way the insurgents were set up. Um, if I remember correctly, there were, I don't know, at least three to four thousand fighters in the city itself. Those guys were very organized. They had checkpoints. They had their own patrols. They had their own convoys, uh, lookouts. I mean, they were very, very organized. Uh, their weaponry was um, 
you know, they, they had a vast, uh, um, a vast selection of weapons. Uh, we also saw a lot of intricate, you know, IEDs, uh, you know, snipers were, you know, really heavy in the city. Uh, and these guys, they kind of stood 10 feet tall. They were not afraid to fight us. Uh, it wasn't the usual insurgent who just shot a couple rounds and ducked. When they attacked us, they used a lot of complex maneuvers. They, you know, they would flank us and use, you know, car bombs to their advantages and, you know, suppress our posts or, you know, they would try to hit us as we were coming back to friendly lines. So the enemy involvement was very, very high. Uh, and uh, we got into a lot of firefights. We had a lot of casualties. And it got to a point where uh, we just kind of became combat ineffective, um, where we just didn't have enough manpower to even be out in the city anymore. And it got so deadly <clears throat> that daytime operations were are no-go. Uh, because we're losing so many guys. Um, we strictly started doing night operations. Um, and we also get a, we also had to get a Mew, uh, redirected to us to literally help us out to, uh, you know, to accomplish the mission. What, uh, f- f- and, for the, uh, for the listeners who might not know, what is a Mew? So it's Mew. It's a Marine expeditionary unit. Uh, essentially it's kind of like a QRF, uh, quick reaction force, um, you know, that's stationed around the world. Um, so it's just having a Marine present, you know, all over the world. And these guys, if I remember right, they were in the, uh, near, uh, Lebanon and, uh, they actually got rerouted to us to help us out. So I believe two, four, uh, two, four was there in December they landed. And, uh, and when they got there, we started launching, you know, offensive operations going house to house. And, you know, implementing, um, you know, um, heavier strategies to retake the city. And that's what we did. Essentially, uh, we went from 85 attacks a week in the beginning to not having a single shot fired in a month. Wow. Um, you know, so, yeah. So, you know, we accomplished what, you know, what a lot of people couldn't. Uh, and it wasn't because of, you know, the Marines or the army that was there. It's just because of the situation. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that we got to do what we needed to do, um, you know, to pacify the city, but the city itself was a, a urban jungle. Um, there wasn't one single building that wasn't untouched by either a JDAM or, you know, machine guns or small rockets. Um, you know, the ROEs were also a little bit different. Uh, we had, um, you know, we have priority for airstrikes and artillery. Uh, you know, if some other city in the province were to call it and we did, we would get it first. Uh, that's how, you know, heavy the fighting was. Um, you know, for instance, uh, we, you know, we ended up doing a mission up towards the Euphrates. Um, that same night, uh, one of our Marines got killed in an IED, um, but we had to continue the mission. So we did. And essentially, we're looking for weapons. Uh, surgeons had a habit of, you know, placing weapons along the river. So we get there. Um, and next thing you know, it's uh, daylight, 8.39 in the morning, and we're still out there. We're, we already knew what the consequences were going to be. And as we're heading back into the city, um, we started getting lit up. Uh, and, you know, out of the chaos, we decided to break contact. And mind you, we had the entire company out there. So we had an entire company that was pinned down. Um, you know, from these insurgents. So we managed to break through and, uh, you know, we're going, you know, street by street and house by house to get to where we needed, you know, to go back to the, to friendly lines. 
And uh, I'll be honest, that was one of the instances where I really thought that a lot of us weren't going to make it um, just because of uh, it, it. We just kind of stirred up a, uh, you know, a wasp nest. Um, you know, we, a lot of the guys in my unit, we call it the Ramadi mile because that's essentially what we had to do. We had to literally just get the hell out of there. You know what I mean? Before we, you know, just became um, completely surrounded. But that's just a small instance on how heavy the fighting was and how, you know, um, advanced the insurgents were in their tactics. Uh, they were constantly watching us. Um, you know, they will use kids as lookouts. Uh, you know, it was just uh, it was just a crazy time. Uh, but also we were able we had to learn to adapt to their tactics. You see what I mean? Um, and that was the only way that, you know, we were able to survive. And unfortunately in war, you learn things because of somebody else's sacrifice or mistake. And that's the hardest part, you know, or somebody learn what a new idea is. Somebody has to step on it, unfortunately. And that's what the hardest part it's, it's, uh, you know, for being in war. Um, you know, if I could change anything, it would just be just, you know, having, you know, having, uh, all the guys come back, um, you know, but other than that, I wouldn't change a single thing besides that. Um, but that's just one of the crazy stories. Um, even snipers, you know, there were also a lot of foreign fighters. That's not a thing that a lot of people don't understand is that you're not fighting the Iraqis who want to liberate, liberate their country. It was essentially a, um, a hot spot for all these foreign fighters that said, Hey, let's go kill Americans over there. You know what I mean? Why go to the U S we got them right here. So essentially we encountered, you know, guys from Iran and, you know, Syria and Egypt and Chechnya and whatever you can think of, you know, guys were out there trying to kill Americans. Right. Um, and, uh, the snipers were sent, they were very deadly. Uh, we had one instance when, um, one of our guys actually got shot through the helmet got back up and then he got shot through the glasses and the bullet actually scraped his cheek. And, uh, as he was coming down the stairs, I saw him, you know, he was bloody and he was laughing and, uh, couldn't figure out what happened. And I just took a picture of him and, uh, he told me what happened. And I was just like, dude, you need to get away from me because, uh, he should have been dead like 10 minutes ago, man. So, um, but you know, the other thing, the other aspect too about combat is that, um, you know, uh, what a lot of veterans also have issues with, including myself, is that why somebody else and why not me? Uh, and there are some things that, that, that happen and you just can't explain it. Uh, yeah. There's really no sense of how some things happen. You know what I mean? Uh, I consider myself lucky. I consider myself lucky to, you know, um, to also been around some just awesome guys that were willing to give up their life for you. And, uh, that's what, um, that's how you, you know, that's the bond that everybody talks about. You know what I mean? That a lot of people don't understand. Uh, when you get a guy that's trying to take a bullet for you, that, that right there is, uh, he's going to do that for you. You know what I mean? That's how strong it is. And that's what kept us alive at the end of the day. Um, you know what I mean? And, uh, it, like I said, I mean, you know, Ramadi was an experience because of that. And I got millions of stories on it. Um, you know what I mean? And but at the end of the day, we accomplished the mission. Um, and when we left the city was, you know, it was peaceful. Uh, and that's what, uh, you know, what a lot of us were proud of, because now we had something to hold on to and say, hey, you know, we went out there and we did we did this. You know what I mean? 
Um, I mean, despite, you know, ISIS taking Ramadi over years later and Fallujah, same deal, which that was a, you know, a kick in the gut for a lot of us. Um, you know what I mean? But at least we can say that while we're out there, we did our job and we did what we needed to do, you know, to the best of our abilities. And, um, you know, so that's pretty much Ramadi for you. Yeah. And I just want to I just want to highlight uh, two things that you said that I think are important for the listeners to take away from for people who aren't uh, who don't have a lot of knowledge on uh, the Iraq war Ramadi specifically and 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 then even more specifically the the enemy that you guys are out there facing so uh, a, 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 I think a popular misconception among a lot of Americans who really don't know much about it is that um you know the Americans are over there fighting against farmers and and guys who have no skill in fighting and and all, and this type of thing. But as you just stated, these guys had very advanced tactics. They were well trained. Um, they understood how to use the rules of engagement against the Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's just a popular misconception that a lot of people have. And I, I I'm glad that you brought that up so that people can hear it from a combat veteran. You know what I mean? And yeah, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you up. Go ahead, man. So, another thing I wanted to bring up was, and it's something that you highlighted very well, I think, is that people think that you guys, Marines, Army, Navy, Air Force, you guys are over there fighting against, you know, defenseless Iraqis who are just trying to defend their land from invaders. But the truth is, with uh, the modern day battlefields, specifically in the Middle East, is you aren't fighting Iraqis. You're fighting Syrians. You're fighting Egyptians. You're fighting, um, you know, Chechens, and, and so you're 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 essentially fighting all of these Islamic extremists from all these different countries who they view this as a jihad, as they call it, or a holy war against the West, against the aggressors from the West, uh, which would be the Americans and uh, American allies. So it isn't just, uh, you know, the, the Marine Corps is fighting these guys, these Iraqis in Ramadi. They're actually fighting Chechens. They're fighting Egyptians. They're fighting Syrians. They're, they're fighting people who have been trained by foreign governments and things like that. And, and that's part of why you are going up against guys who had these professional soldiering skills. And and, and I, I'm just glad that you brought that up, and that and I hope that the listeners can understand that and and learn something about modern warfare from that. Yeah, if I can add something to it, uh, you know, a lot of people um, what they also don't understand is the type of fighting. Uh, essentially, you're fighting an invisible enemy, um, and that's something that you know the, a, a lot of Vietnam veterans will tell you. You know, uh, you meet a person. Well, who is this guy? Is he an insurgent? Is he a good guy? Is he trying to help us out? Is he got a trick up his sleeve? What is it? And that's what we encountered every day, not just in Ramadi or Fallujah or Baghdad. I mean, all over Iraq, that's what we encountered. We don't go out there because, hey, let's go kill people because we feel like it. It's that we also have to make split second decisions, um, you know, based on things that are happening right now. You know what I mean? Uh, so you can, I mean, we had kids throw grenades at us, you know, uh, you have old people who are out there with a sniper rifle. You also got to understand that 
why are some of these people even fighting? Uh, let's say the Iraqi themselves, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, didn't have a job after the war, you know, I mean, you know, they got occupied and all that good stuff. They got to make money. Uh, a lot of people, you know, insurgents will go up to them and take advantage of it and say, hey, man, you want to feed your family? Go put that bomb over there for, you know, 200 bucks. And that's what they'll do. Um, so for us, being in the middle of it, it's just hard to, you know, really set aside, well, who's a bad guy, who's not? We don't have front lines. We don't have uniforms. The insurgents don't use Geneva Convention. Uh, so for us, we're, you know, we're trying to fight a war with essentially, you know, our hands tied to our balls, you know, at the end of the day. Right. And then we got to get criticized, you know, from somebody who hasn't been there or somebody who's like, well, you should have done this. And why did you do that? Incidents did happen. Civilians did get killed. Um, and that's unfortunate. You know what I mean? But we also had every reason to do so, because if a car comes by, how do I know? that's not packed with explosives. Am I willing to gamble my life or the, the, you know, the lives of my brothers to figure that one out. And my philosophy is that, you know what, I'd rather be wrong and go to jail and, you know, having my guys alive than not do anything. And at times the, believe it or not, you know, the politics affects the command and the command affects us. You know, we had a lot of guys who would hesitate to pull the trigger or do something because, they would fear, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble. And that's what that's not what a Marine or a soldier or whoever needs to have in his mind when he's in those situations. You know what I mean? Um, so essentially, it's a very complicated scenario, um, you know, where you have, you know, weapons, you have trained fighters, you have civilians who are just caught in the, in the crossfire. And then you have us, you know what I mean? So every day we also always have to make decisions, but uh, also understand that every decision that we made was also to make sure that we avoided civilian casualties, you know, make sure that, you know, we did the right thing. And, and we morally always did, um, you know, results happen because that's just war. And that's, you know, some things, they just happen and you can't really go back and fix it. Uh, but every decision that me and my guys made, um, you know what? We sleep good at night. And I don't really care what anybody else really thinks, especially if they haven't been over there. They can sit there and talk about, oh, it's about oil and politics and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, when we go out there, it's about, to, you know, it's about the guy to your left and to your right and getting the mission done and go home. And that's pretty much it. And you do what you can, you know, because we're not trying to get, you know, we're not like World War II guys who are, Hey, Tokyo or Berlin, that's our goal. We get there, we finish the war. Those are the bad guys. We don't have that. You know what I mean? We, we, don't, we don't have that luxury. Um, but we decided to, you know, join and enlist for different reasons. But when we we're out there, uh, we got a job to do. And as hard as it may seem, we will get it done, you know? So that's one thing that I definitely want to emphasize because a lot of people that are here, they're like, oh, well, you guys went there for this, these reasons and you guys are doing this. And shouldn't have shot this guy and so on and so forth. Well, what the hell do you know, man? You know what I mean? Uh, it's easy to judge somebody, um, you know, uh, looking, you know, looking back, it's easy to judge somebody, but when you're in that situation, you try to make the best call you can. So, um, as you said, you know, about the fighters, um, they blend in with civilians and you got to make some calls, man. You got to make some really hard calls at times. And, uh, you know, so that's one thing I definitely wanted to point out. Yeah, and it's it's an excellent point to bring up, and the uh, the the wars 
in this this global pursuit on uh, countering terrorism, the, the GWAT, the global war on terror, is completely different from any war that's been fought before. I mean, Vietnam has some similarities in um, in the aspects of, you know, a guy's a farmer in the afternoon, and then at night he's taking pot shots at 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 the Marines or whatever. And and the guys in Vietnam experienced some of that, but I think even to an even higher level, the the guys from your generation of warfighters experienced that to like uncharted levels. Because in World War Two, it's like like you said, the objective is to take Berlin. So we're gonna fight our way until we get there, and then we're gonna control the city, and then the fighting's over. Um, because the enemy is wearing blue, we're wearing red, and and now we won, and that's it. And and not to take anything away from those guys, you know, obviously that was a you know a war of attrition where so many people were killed. Um, but the wars that you guys were fighting is there's and 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 people need to understand this. You know, before people are, are judging you guys and and things like that, they really need to understand the history of warfare and to understand that there's never really been these type of rules of engagements in any war prior. Like there wasn't, oh, don't drop a bomb here because there's civilians there. It's where are we dropping a bomb that's going to kill the most people because that's what war is. And and people don't seem to understand that. And I think a part of that is because it's been so long since there was a conventional war that people people forget about history. You know what I mean? And um, and it's like you said, the, the guys you're fighting, they're not observing the Geneva Conventions, which are you know rules on how to fight war and things like that. They, that doesn't matter to them. Um, all that matters to them is inflicting the maximum amount of casualties. And and they're trying to get into the heads of the Americans or the the um, you know the, the Western militaries that they're fighting against. Exactly. Yeah. Right on point, man. So talking about you know the history of warfare and how things were prior to this uh, modern warfare, this global war on terror. I know you know I know myself. I'm uh, I'm a, a bit of a history geek, and from following you on social media. Obviously, you have an interest in history as well. Can you talk about your company, Zero Foxtrot, a little bit and, and kind of what you guys do on social media as well? Yeah, of course, man. Uh, so I'm the same boat as you, man. I'm, I'm definitely a huge history buff myself. Uh, you know, I always had a fascination for, you know, the past and all that. Uh, and having been in the military, it kind of opened up those doors to, you know, the past generation warrior. So when I started Zero Foxtrot, essentially it started just as a page, uh, as uh, as an idea, uh, as a means to kind of vent out my rage, man, at the end of the day and trying to connect with like-minded people. Because by that time, uh, I was already out of the military for, you know, several years. And uh, what most guys will tell you is that they lack a sense of direction and purpose when they get out. And it was no different with me. So... Um, you know, it was a time where I was really antisocial. I didn't really talk to anybody. Nobody really understood me. And uh, I figured, you know, maybe doing a page where you just kind of, you know, bring out uh, what's in your head. Uh, and that's kind of how I started. Um, didn't really have a particular direction to go with it. Um, the company or the page was actually called Zero Fucks, you know, in all, in all essence. That's kind of what it was. Uh, and then I started incorporating the, you know, the history stuff. I noticed that people, uh, you know, had a lot of good feedback. Um, 
you know, a lot of people were like, hey, man, I didn't know about this guy or, hey, thanks for sharing that, you know. And that's kind of where it started. I started, you know, focusing a lot more on the past generation things. And along the way, I learned a lot of things, you know what I mean? Um, so, um, you know, I post a lot of, you know, Medal of Honor guys or, you know, just incredible stories that and there's thousands and thousands of them of guys that nobody's ever even heard of. Uh, and that's what I try to do. I try to I do my research. And I try to, um, you know, tell their story, essentially, you know what I mean? And it kind of brings, you know, it brings back the sense of pride. It brings back the sense of their actions. Is It's the results that we see here now, you know what I mean? Um, so, um, and then it's, you know, I also get family members who hit me out of nowhere. They're like, hey, man, that, that profile, oh, that's my uncle, man. You know, he appreciates that or whatever. So it's kind of cool. And that's kind of how kind of people came connected. Um, and it's also a blend of, you know, military dark humor, um, you know, some current events. I, you know, cover a lot of uh, things from World War II and Vietnam and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, also include things from GY. Essentially, it's just kind of like, you know, my personal experiences in life into social media. So a lot of people, you know, they, they see that, uh, they see the uniqueness of it. And, uh, you know, they're just trying to be part of something. Uh, that I always wanted to belong to, you know what I mean? Um, and that's kind of how I started. So I don't really essentially consider it a business, but more of uh, a lifestyle or a place where people can, you know, um, share their thoughts, you know, learn some things, have a few laugh and, you know, just kind of go like that, man. You know what I mean? Um, so, and then the product started coming out, you know, mostly because people were like, hey, man, that's a really cool quote or, hey, that's an awesome picture, man. You should do a shirt with that or a patch and, and kind of, you know, kind of went like that. So when people buy these these products, um, you know, they're buying something that they believe in and they, they're buying something to be to be part of it. Uh, so and that's what's what's a great thing about it, you know, so. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of how the company started. Uh, it's been doing really well, you know essentially because the people that follow me and the people that, you know, stand behind, stand behind it and, and support it. Uh, we also, you know, gave back to, you know, several nonprofits, um, you know, and just kind of have a good time doing it. Um, you know what I mean? And it's getting bigger and better. Um, and it's gonna go from there, man. You know what I mean? But I'm never going to lose the root, you know, where all this came from either. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome, and um, I've been following you for a while on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, with that, we'll we'll conclude this interview. Um, can you drop social media handles, websites, or any point of contact that you may have for any of the listeners who would like to know more about you or who would like to reach out to you? Yeah, of course, man. So on Instagram, uh, it's at Zulu underscore fucks. I'm sorry, at Zulu fucks. Um, the, uh, Facebook, it's zero Foxtrot. You can type it up and the website is www.zerofoxtrot.com. Uh, one thing I also wanted to point out, everything we make, it's made here in the U S and, uh, you know, stay zero. Awesome, man. And I, again, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to, to come on and, uh, share some of your experiences in war and, um, and, and also just talk about your company, man. And, uh, I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get you on for future episodes. I love to, man. Thanks again. I, you know, thanks for the opportunity, man. And, uh, well, we'll definitely stay in touch, man. For sure. Peace.
So at the closing of that interview, I'm going to close out this episode. And I really enjoyed having that conversation with G from Zero Foxtrot. As we speak history, we speak about how it affects modern day war and current events as they happen. So before we close out, I just want to remind everybody that Mike Glover, the co-host of the show, who is the owner of Fieldcraft LLC, and Travis Osborne of Defiant LLC are going to be holding a minimalist tactical med course April 30th in Northern California. Um, Mike is a 17-year veteran of the Army. Uh, The majority of that was spent in Special Forces. Um, He has over a dozen combat deployments, and he has a lot of experience, which is why he's an incredible teacher. And Travis Osborne, who we had on the show uh, twice on two different episodes, is also a longtime veteran of the Army Special Forces um, Command. And Travis was actually the medic who was part of the rescue team that rescued Marcus Luttrell during the Lone Survivor operation. So to sign up for that course, you can head to fieldcraftsurvival.com slash store, click the training and consulting tab, and then scroll down until you see the minimalist tactical med course. Okay, so uh, Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. His Instagram, he has two Instagrams. Um, his first account is Soft Survivor, that's SOF Survivor. His second account is Fieldcraft Survival. And his Twitter is IG Soft Survivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I also have two Instagram profiles. My first one is IG Recon. My second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. And my Twitter is IG Recon. It's the same as my first Instagram account. If you have any questions about anything you heard on the show, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. Either myself or Mike will give you a response. And we respond to every uh, email that we get, every message, and so on and so forth. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes, comment, download, uh, leave us a rating, and that way it can help keep us at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes, and it will enable us to continue to provide you guys with high-quality content. So I'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.